Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. First Peter chapter 2, we'll pick up at verse 8 where we left off last week, and I'm hoping to finish chapter 3 today and we'll get all the way through chapter 3. Context, and this is the thing, Peter's writing a letter, and he's writing a letter to all the churches, and it, the tough part is on Sundays when we break up a letter into multiple weeks, like we lose track of the flow of thought. Um, but First Peter was meant to be a letter read as a single teaching, um, and so it's there. Peter is giving advice to Christians. Chapter 1, he gave encouragement for them in the middle of persecution to gird up their loins, right? Get ready for this. Get, get ready for the battle. Jesus' faith and God's words are equipping them for the tools they need for, to get through this. And so he's kind of playing each of those out. First, he goes into being holy and having your conduct be holy. Then he goes through faith and hope. And then he says, since we have faith and hope, we start to develop love. And as we start to love one another, we do that through the teaching of God's word. So then you get to chapter two and he says, when that's happening, when that process, and again, I think it's, it's reverse progressive, study God's word, develop love for the family, faith and hope come as you start to have opportunities to share your faith. And that starts to happen in your life, which then helps your conduct to be more and more holy. And they, they build and it becomes a progression. Chapter 2 goes back to emphasize the conduct, throw away evil conduct, and come back to him as a living stone. So the motivation for being, and that's in verse 5, the motivation for us as believers to be holy is because we want to be part of this building that God's building with his people, living stones, building a new kind of spiritual temple. So Peter sees the church as this temple, and it's set apart from God, and he gives a bunch of plural definitions. You are together as a body, verse 9 of chapter 2, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, um, or this is his first one, or chapter 1, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who you called out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's the, that's the idea. And the idea is that you become this great people. So very helpful in avoiding persecution then would be when we get to chapter 2, verse 12. Um, wait, wait for your conduct to be better among the Gentiles. And so work on that conduct. You need strong reputations. We talked about marriages. You need strong marriages. And then in chapter 2, then you submit to your governments. You submit to your bosses. Um, that idea of we render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but we render to God the things that are God's. It's an easy concept, but when you take it out of context, it can be, a well, God says to obey all governments. No, he doesn't. He says to obey God, and we submit to governments the things that belong to a government, like our order and our taxes and then that sort of thing. We do the same thing in marriages. Chapter 3 started with husbands and wives, heirs together. And then in verse 12 of chapter 2, we have this theme that Peter's going through. We honor all people. We love the brotherhood. We fear God. We honor the king. And so that idea of how we conduct ourselves is part of dealing with persecution. If we're above reproach, then to persecute us, you have to persecute us for our faith, 
not for our misbehaviors. So that to the, whatever degree the church can get themselves to where they pursue God more than other things, we then have one mind as a body, and that's where we start. So chapter 3, verse 8, right? That's where we're at? Okay. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Again, go back to chapter 2, verse 17. Love the brotherhood. It's a consistent theme with Peter. Love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. So he's unpacking each of these ideas. He's gone through how to honor all people, but now he's talking specifically about loving the brotherhood and just being part of that body. So verse 8, finally, we're halfway through the letter. And Peter says, finally, I just think this is funny because it's indicative of most pastors. On our last point, and then you're only halfway through the whole thing. (laughs) So the word finally there, being in the middle of the letter is an odd thing. But I think what's going on there is he's saying to this end. If you look it up in the Greek, it's de telos, the end of all things or the main point, um, which is more appropriate. When he says in verse 8, The main point is this, be of one mind, be working together on things. All of you be of one mind, or in the Greek, it's one mind. So all for one would be a great way to literally translate that. You're all for one, you're one for all. And so we get that phrasing from Peter, the end of it, all one mind, it's all the same thing. Um, It is not easy to do this one mind thing, however, because you have human beings that all have their own will. So how do you do this? And so there's different ways. This is a really tough passage. People read it differently. There's three different ways that I saw this passage getting taken. One way, which I don't know if there's a lot of evidence for this, but to be of one mind is a verse that gets used for pastoral leadership. Basically, follow your pastor. And that's an odd thing because submitting to the pastor is not part of Peter's letter. He has a submitting to bosses. He has a submitting to our... our um, our spouses, he has us submitting to our king and our government, but he never really talks about submitting to pastors. Um, but the idea of pastors being a shepherd, a guard, a teacher is more Peter's perspective on things. Then you get the second perspective. Being of one mind means we all basically have the same thing to work on. And that we all have, and that would be everything he's talked about in the first three chapters, and that is loving one another in context. We all have to love one another. How we do that may look different. So being of one mind is to have the same goal, but having different gifts and talents, we do it in very different ways. And so that's an interesting kind of thing. But the, the, the callings and the different gifts then create a diversity in the church for which we have a unity in the church. It's kind of an odd contrast when you look at that. Then there's the third way this gets looked at. Being of one mind is this. The disciples were told to follow Christ. And if we're all of one mind, that means we're all following Christ. And yet the callings that we have would look different. And so this is kind of supported 1 Corinthians 2.16. For he who hath known the mind of the Lord, not the mind of a human being, not the mind of a pastor, not the mind of each other, right? But those who know the mind of the Lord, that he may be instructed, that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. And so Paul's using that language of the mind of Christ and I would suggest that that might be the, the approach that I would look at on this, is that being of one mind, Peter's assuming that we understand that means to have the mind of Christ, to follow Christ, to look like Christ, to act like Christ. And we do that together as a church. So he's encouraging or instructing us to follow after Christ. 
Um, if we don't study the word, it's hard to know the mind of Christ. So what happens in a church is we're all studying together. This is an interesting phenomenon. If we're going through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we do it together, then some of the same things are working on all of our lives at the same time, even though it plays out differently with each one of us. So I think that's a fascinating thing in the church. I think it's a miracle that happens every week that we study the same chapter, but each of us hears it differently because different things are going on in our life. But to be of one mind is to really study the word together and be kind of going through it together and going through life journey together in the same regard. So it's hard to do that if you're not going through the word. And it's hard to be thinking similar thoughts when you're not going through the same Bible studies together. So we have compassion for one another. The only reason you need compassion is if someone else is going through something. So Peter's context here is, of course, persecution, that people go through things. But there is an assumption that not everybody goes through tough times at the same time. And this is part of being the body of Christ. Um, if you stub your toe, only your toe is hurting, but the rest of the body sure feels it and knows about it. So when we as a church have somebody that's hurting in our church, the Greek word there for compassion is sympathy or sympatheo, to actually feel the feelings of other people. And to be able to understand what they're going through to the best ability. It's not empathy, it's sympathy. So, a care. Then he says, love as brothers. The word there is Philadelphios. Brotherly or family-like love. The love you have for one another in a family. Now this said, and I think this is kind of funny, brothers and sisters often fight with each other. Right? Family love, like, I, you wouldn't believe how many times mom or I have had to say, Katie and Grant, just stop bickering. Just end it. You don't have to go on for, they'll go on for hours if we don't cut them off. And then if we cut them off, they'll go to another room and they'll keep going, right? So the idea of Philadelphia's to love as brothers isn't to put on a happy face and be elated and, you know, and hug and kiss all the time, though that's included in it. It really has to do with this idea of no matter how much I don't like you, we're still family. And I'm going to commit to family because I believe family is important. That's Philadelphia's. To be tender-hearted. Use blackness. To have, and literally, the translation for tender-hearted is to have strong bowels. This is, an this is Peter the fisherman talking, right? Have compassion on one another. Have one mind. Have compassion for one another. Love each other like a family and have strong bowels. This is an odd command. So the way that gets used in the first century um, is to be resolved. To have strong bowels to say, I'm going to commit to something. And I'm going to have the guts to, to commit to it. That's where we get that phrase. So we think of hearts as the center of our social interactions. I have a heart for you. I have rooms in my heart. In the first century, you would have guts for people. And you would say, you know what? My guts are with you. If you think about it, when there's wrong relationship with people, the first thing in your body to go is usually your gut. Like you get upset about things. You feel it in your gut. And they just kind of ran with that as an image. So the disposition that can handle other people is the disposition of the church. It's not that we all get along with each other perfectly every single day. There might be bickering. We might argue. We might have a different opinion about what one mind means in this passage. But we say it doesn't, I'm still going to resolve to be with these people. And in that sense, we're following Christ together. We have one mind in that commitment. So to have strong guts to deal with each other implies that sometimes it's not easy to do this. Sometimes it's a struggle. And I feel really blessed because, frankly, I don't see a lot of these kinds of infights here, but I think most of us have gone to churches where you see some of that, 
there is some stuff where you just got to have some guts to deal with people sometimes. It takes guts if you have to rebuke somebody. But parents do that with children all the time. Philadelphios, that kind of family love. I got to talk to you about something, right? To be courteous is the other thing Peter says. Courteous is really translates really well. It's basic friendliness, just to be nice to each other. So at some level, to be kind, to have some thought for each other, to be friendly with each other. So to be of one mind, to have compassion with each other, to love each other like a family, to have a strong gut towards each other, and to be courteous of one another. And Peter's saying, this is how you love the brotherhood. This is what it means to love the brotherhood. Also, this becomes the foundation for our story that we tell other people. The message we tell other people is that I have a family that, that loves me and that would die for me. Because you have to, if you're in that kind of church, you have a foundation in that kind of church that doesn't break. And it might be flexible, but it doesn't break. By this we know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another, John 13, 35. This is a concept that Jesus taught the disciples. How you treat each other is how other people will know that you love the Lord. It's how we stand out. So when you talk to other people that are struggling with things, they're going through tough times, and you say, you know what? You need a new family. And then I have a family that's actually there for me and backs me up on things. So not returning evil for evil, verse 9, obviously when you get slighted, when you feel overlooked, when you want to even the score with people, the flesh wants to just attack and make a battle out of it. And in the church, we don't act that way. We act very differently in the church. It describes how to let things go or how to be long-suffering, but on the contrary, be a blessing. So Peter tells you how to do this. What you might want to do is pick a fight with that person and have it out with that person, but what you should do is find a way to bless that person. How can I just be a blessing to them? Peter gets this too directly from Jesus, Matthew 5, 44. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for those that despitefully use you and persecute you. But even within the church, Peter then applies that in, inside the church too. Deal, be ready to deal with people that aren't perfect so that you may inherit a blessing. Most of Peter's arguments, like when he gives a reason for something, it's so that you please the Lord God. And when he says this, it's interesting how he says, so that you may re re inherit a blessing. He actually makes this a fairly selfish thing. And that's interesting because selfishness is what drives us to do evil for evil. Like, I want to get that person. It's love that says, I want to do something nice for that person. And God says, every time we do that, there's a blessing in doing it. How can we bless people? And this is how you become a peacemaker. Another thing that he got straight from Jesus, blessed are the peacemakers. So if you're able to make peace with people and to build that kind of relationship, that one mind in the church leads straight on to blessings in your life. Wow, I feel like I just got, I got a lot of stuff going on, right? If even, and this is self-correcting in the church, even if one person in the body comes in and they're really screwed up and they start doing saying mean things, being unkind to people, or they're not in unity with the body in that sense, there is a self-correcting where they can run around and try to gossip and nobody wants to hear the gossip because we return good for evil. Or they might want to try to create drama or hard feelings or work people up about each other and they just can't find anybody to do that with because in brotherly love we just laugh and say, well, yeah, that's kind of how Tom is. Live, you know, deal with it. You know, learn to live with it. 
And so it is an interesting thing. And it, and it creates an environment where I think as new people come into that environment, they see a very tight, close-knit family. And that's good. And hopefully there's a part of them that says, I kind of want to be in that kind of a community. So to be of one mind, to deal with it, to have compassion and to deal with it. So we learn how to do this and how, what, what this looks like. We all know that Christ says how to live and how to live in serving him. So when it says compassion, one of our responses is, oh, that's not good. Let's pray about it. And so that's how we deal with people that are struggling. Let's give it back to the Lord. With one mind, we give it right back to the Lord. How do we love each other? Oh, I've spoken to that person or somebody comes and complains about it and you say, well, have you, have you talked to him one-on-one yet? Like, let's love them and give them the credit of like a one-on-one conversation. And if he hears you, you've gained a brother. That's a family-like relationship. Or the blunt, tough gut reproof, right? You have a strong gut, strong bowels. And somebody comes complaining to you and you just say, well, don't come running to me. Go work it out with the Lord, right? That was the Romaine approach to things, right? The courteous things. Well, somebody comes and complains to you about something, you say, you know what? I know so-and-so, and I know that they would never mean to hurt you by saying or doing that. I know that. And there's just this compassion and this courtesy that goes out. So I think that idea of self-correction, if we're all of one mind serving the Lord Jesus, we all become peacemakers. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. There's a variety of approaches to how to make peace with people. So the world has conflict that spins out of control all the time. That's all they do is they stir up factions, they pit one against one another, and in the church we operate totally different. We do the exact opposite of the world. Matthew 5, 44, I say to you, love your enemies, bless them that cursed you, do good to those that hate you, and pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you, that you might be the children of your Father which is in heaven. This is an interesting concept, and it goes back around. So as Peter just got done talking about how to obey the government, how to, to serve your bosses, All of this comes back around to this idea that this is how we inherit our blessings. This is how we get there. So Peter paraphrases Psalm 34. He's actually citing, you know, the scriptures to back up his point. Um, So here's Psalm 34, verse 10 in our chapter. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And he who is in, who in, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? So the idea of dealing with persecution, first of all, be a good person. Don't be somebody that other people want to come at. But also, again, this is he who would love life in verse 10. Well, I, that's me. I love life. I, want my, I, I wake up in the morning and I want to have good days every day. So what do I do to do that? Well, for starters, control my tongue. Watch what I say. The words out of our mouth can create more confusion and chaos than anything else that we say or do. Seek peace and pursue it. So many Christians, I find, and this isn't, you know, and again, brotherly love thing, but I see a lot of brothers and sisters that seem to like conflict better than peace. They want the battle and they pursue the battle. And and our heart should be for building relationships with people. It shouldn't be for fighting people. 
And so this idea of seeking peace and pursue it, you feel like, you know, have you, this is what Peter actually says. This is what all the disciples said. This is what Jesus says. This is what the Psalms say. This is what David said. Instead of having a heart for war, we have a heart for peace. And that is a tool by which we share a witness with other people because they see a human being that would rather have peace than a fight. And that's totally different than the flesh. It's a confounding situation when someone tries to engage you in a fight and you refuse. And, that's, and Peter's about to go on to say that we defend our faith. Um, but the idea of looking for the battle is something that he's saying, don't do that. Don't go and seek that out. So there's plenty of conflict out there for us to boldly proclaim our faith, Ephesians 6.19. We ought to be ready to defend our faith in verse 15 coming up. We need to speak truth versus lies, Jeremiah 9. If we simply go through our life and speak truth and love, there will be plenty of conflict for those people that like it. It's coming. But to stand on your principles and to be of one mind and love the brotherhood, that's making you distinct from anybody who's not in that kind of a fellowship. And it makes you stand out. So we talk to the people we know and we're like, I got a family. And so when everyone else we know who doesn't have that kind of spiritual family talks about their troubles, we invite them. And it becomes a very natural thing. So to be righteous, to be righteous means to live rightly. It does not mean perfection. It doesn't mean blameless. It doesn't mean to be beyond forgiveness and grace. It simply means to live in a way that is right before God. It has nothing to do with our um, salvation. It has to do with how we act because we've been saved. And we say, I want to live right. And I choose to do that. So to love each other is eternally good for our soul. And there is a huge blessing that comes with it. And I love that. I find the people that are most in turmoil all of the time, the people with the most drama, also think about themselves more often than not. And the reason they're in so much drama is they're too worried about what other people think or they're too worried about themselves being perceived by other people in the right way. And it creates just a heart of drama. But loving life is to seek, seek truth, to be peaceful, and to live righteously. And you can then enjoy life. It becomes a space to do that. So it says, uh, the eyes and the ears are opened. Uh, you can't be cur- if you can't be courteous, don't expect God to spend a lot of time on you. This is a terrifying thought. This comes back to the fear of the Lord. It actually says the Lord is against in verse 12. On the flip side, the more strife you have built up for yourself in life, the more out of step you are with God's peace, the Lord's actually against that. And so picking a side at some degree is to decide I will live with harmony with the people around me and and with my Lord. And to do that, I don't want guilt all the time. I'm sick of the shame that the sin causes me. I don't like to have hard feelings with the people around me. So stop. And so this comes back to a principle that I think most believers of any amount of time realize is that you kind of make your own bed in life. And Peter's basically, you know, I think by quoting Psalm 34 here, he's actually kind of making that point. If you love life and you want to see good days, refrain your tongue from evil. Stop causing more problems with your mouth than you need to. Turn away from evil and do good. Think of just the basic principle of that. Stop doing things that God sees as evil. Seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, which implies that his eyes are not on the unrighteous. 
If you're still finding ways to compromise with sin and integrate it into your Christian life, the Lord's not really working on you very much. And the Bible says the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, those that want to seek right living. His ears are open to their prayers. What a thought. He actually decides who he's going to listen to. This is contrary to, I think, human arrogance that when we pray, God has to listen to us. No, he doesn't. He chooses who to listen to. Prayers of a righteous man avail much, which means the prayers of the unrighteous don't avail much. So all you have to do, given that we're all at one point unrighteous, is we humble ourselves before the Lord and we say, please forgive us. And we come in that state of humility before the Lord's, and then we choose to live rightly from today forward. That's all we have. And who is he? Peter brings this back to the persecution idea, verse 13. Who is he that will harm you if you become follower of, of what's good? What kind of person attacks a truly decent Christian? You have to be pretty evil to go after a Christian just for being nice, to be at peace. And what you'll find in our society and throughout human history is if we love the brethren, if we're honorable to others, and we fear God more than man, there are plenty of conflicts that Christians have gotten into over that alone. And just doing and resolving to do the things God calls us to do. Because what happens is the ungodly don't like the competition. They don't like that we don't do what we tell them to do. And it's amazing how many different directions this come, come from. But if you're a generally good person, very few people want you dead for that. Persecution is would subside considerably if you're nice people. This implies that as Peter's writing this out to the church, there are churches that are looking for fights and battles, and then they happen to get into them. And so he's, the advice here is stop pursuing those fights and battles, and you'll find that you don't get into as many of them. Don't make that bed. So when you single yourselves out as God's enemy, that's a problem. Become followers, mementes. It's where we get the word mimic from. Become followers and imitator of Jesus Christ. Be like Jesus. And that means not necessarily that you go looking for Rome to persecute you and put you on a cross, but when the, the religious leaders put you in front of Caesar, you're going to speak truth and, and you'll take whatever they got coming. Accept their consequences and watch God do wonderful things. If we can be like Jesus, mature believers, we're healed, we're redeemed, we're restored, we choose joy, we love each other like a family, what kind of person is possibly upset by joy? The people that don't have it. And they can either be jealous of that joy and seek it with you, or they can be angry that you get more joy from this family fellowship than you do from them. And that creates a, a, a natural conflict with unbelievers. We don't have to look for it. And it's an odd thing. This is a weird thing. And frankly, from what we've seen over the last 20 years is this often comes from people that were very close to you before you got saved. Why are you so interested in that Jesus stuff all of a sudden? Right? And, and I think the proper response is, why would you be upset that I'm joyful? I'm enthusiastic. I have peace in my heart. Why is that such a bad thing? Come join me. So, suffering for the right reasons. Verse 14 in our chapter 3. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. So, there are cases where even if you do what Peter just suggested, there's still going to be some, some persecution that happens. Hopefully rarely, hopefully not as much. But if it does happen, know that God's blessing you for that. You're doing a very special work for the kingdom when that does happen, even after you've done what Peter suggested. 
Do not be afraid of their threats. Do not be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your heart and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Why do you hope so much? Why are you so happy? With meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good contact in Christ might be ashamed because we don't return reviling for reviling, even outside the church. For it's better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Here's the thing, Christians, if you're going to get into it with people in the world, don't get into it because you're a jerk. Get into it for the exact right reasons that you represent the king. And be nice. But even if, verse 14, this is that idea. Uh, our hearts should want what's in verse 10. That's what our hearts go after. Our hearts pursue that. But there will, some of us will have this challenging calling that we have to get into it. Peter lives in the real world. Even if right living will quell most attacks, there's still a thing called evil out there that will come after you because of your right living. And that's realistic. So, those that suffer for righteousness' sake. Um, this is, and, and I, I just want to point this out. Being rude to non-believers and then being surprised when they reject you is not the right reason for persecution, right? That's the wrong thing. Or as a good friend of mine once said, we approach people and we put a bucket of water on their head and we expect them to say thank you. It's not how it works. Suffer for righteousness' sake. So I think this is an interesting concept, and, I, and we run into it a lot, I think, with very enthusiastic Christians, but their enthusiasm is a permission to be rude and to enter into conversations that people aren't welcoming and that they don't want. And that's an odd situation. Do not fear those who kill the body and can't kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and the body in hell, Matthew 10, 28. When Peter says, don't be afraid, it's after he's done saying, be nice, be kind, be friendly with people. Be ready to give a response, a defense to everybody that's there. Actually, I'm going to get to that in a bit. I just want to read this passage from Isaiah. It sounds like God when Peter says, don't be afraid. And I just, that don't be afraid, be strong and courageous message, we've heard it through the entire Old Testament. And part of the thing is, it, it doesn't say, it says to do not, do not be afraid, which means that there's Christians that are afraid of what people will think of them and what, they'll be, what other people will do to them. And the command of the Bible has been and remains the message with Peter and should remain the message with us that we don't fear what other people will do to us, but that's not licensed to be rude to them either. Right? So there's this balance, this discernment. Isaiah 8, 12. Don't say a conspiracy concerning that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their hearts, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, him who shall hallow, let him be your fear and let him be your dread. We don't worry about what the world's going to do or what the world's going to say to us. We accept it. We don't have to look for conspiracies. We, we let them do their thing. And this is interesting. And this is prevalent in the church today. We look for what the world is doing that's so rotten and horrible. We watch the news feed. Oh, look at what bill they're just passing. And I do this for my work, right? I let people know what they're doing with education and some of these bills they're passing that are not good. So I share that with people. In the church, we don't necessarily worry about that. Is the world going to conspire against the church? Yep. 
let them. We don't have to expend any energy on that until we have to. And that's called the defense. So we don't have to be troubled about those things. We continue to do what we're going to do. So when China says you can't meet as a church and Chinese Christians continue to meet as a church, that is doing what God has called them to do, despite the fact that the government has created other laws. So in just humbly doing the things that are right, they will have conflict with their government. Even more so to be gentle, to be friendly. Those are the kinds of things that, that can be used against us too. And so I, I, you know, I like to say the world comes at us in different ways. I don't think the first response of the world to our righteous living is to send us to jail or to kill us. The first response to the world is to appeal to the very things that we're trying to be. So if I'm trying to be righteous, then you'll have people in the world that'll say, well, you're doing it. You need to be right living. You need to do it this way. They'll try to dictate right living. Uh, if you want to be friends with me, you need to come do this thing with me on a Sunday morning instead of going to do that other thing. Right? They'll threaten us with friendship. It's an odd thing. Or they'll dangle spiritual benefits. Well, if you do this instead of that thing that you're called to do, well, there's going to be so many benefits for over you. You're just going to grow like crazy. And it's going to be wonderful. But all of it is other human beings trying to push us to do things that God's never told us to do. And sticking to the scriptures is one of those things that, well, that's so narrow. That's such a, 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 a way to do it that's so difficult and so hard. You have to sit for more than 15 minutes to go through a chapter? Yep, we do. So there, there's the threat of convenience. Well, you can get in and out over here this quick, and it's super easy, and there's no commitment. There's no, the families can be messy, and they take time. And you got family members that it can be a burden on you. Why would you do any of that? Why don't you just get in, sing your songs, and get out? And so you have this, these appeals from the world to do things that are contrary to what God's asked you to do. Read my word. Love the brotherhood. Be honorable to the Gentiles around you. And, and Peter's laying it out very simply and very directly. Verse 15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. That's a command. So how do you sanctify? What does it mean to sanctify? To sanctify something is to set it apart and make it holy. Another word for it is to consecrate. So you say, I don't know how to do this life, Lord, but if you tell me to sanctify you in my heart, then everything having to do with God becomes set apart and special for me. And that's what I'm going to choose. It's not a feeling. You don't get it when you, it's not just an elated emotive kind of response. It's a choice that you make. And to say, I'm going to commit to these things. God asked for you to sanctify some areas of your life. He asked for you to sanctify a Sabbath. Do it. And yet look at how look at the one day of the week that people will ask you to do other things. Right? It's been interesting. I grew, initially I grew up in a small town where everything was closed on a Sunday. You couldn't do business on a Sunday. You just couldn't. There was nobody doing business. And it was an interesting thing, but look at how that's one of the first areas that in our society that got crap. We get upset about transgender identification stuff why didn't we get upset when they started to do business on Sundays like there's a level at which there's nice little simple innocuous things that take away the sanctification of God in our life they make something that where it's not holy anymore so God asks for a tithe he asks for you to study his word he asks for you to worship him in, in, in spirit and in truth 
And those are the things that we kind of take for granted. And wow, they're not that important. We don't have to do these things. But if we sanctify things in our hearts, we're not looking for the culture's approval of it. We do it because God said to do it. And there's so much blessing in it. That's the thing for Peter is he came into town. He wasn't a sourpuss. He was offering people a better way to live. Like there's so much more joy in this. God wants us to choose him, heart, mind, soul, and strength. He wants us to sanctify that, make a decision to follow the Lord. In choosing where God wants to lead us, other humans have to be number two, and that's where the conflict comes from. Other humans telling us how to live and how to do things. And so it's tough, but that's not in a sense that we're thoughtless towards others or mean, and I think that's the whole point of what Peter's saying here. We honor other people as much as we can, and if they're not in conflict with what God's asked us to do, we'll die for those people. We'll go to bat for those people. We'll, do, we'll bend over backwards to serve and honor others. But they come second to God, period, because God's sanctified. It's amazing how simple consecrations lead you into a life of faith. Giving something to God can be extremely threatening to everybody else that's not following it, where the Lord isn't sanctified in their hearts. Tell everyone you know that wants your Sabbath, nope, Sabbath is set aside for God. Well, just this once won't make a big difference. Nope, it's sanctified and set aside for God. What do you mean you're not going to come to your second brother-in-law's cousin's wedding? No, it's on a Sunday. That's sanctified for God. You say, oh, it's super legalistic, Sean. It's not legalistic when I choose to do it. It's legalistic when somebody else tells me to do it. So when I'm reading God's word and he says to sanctify God in my heart, well, okay, I'm just going to choose to do that. And for me, that means some of these very basic, simple things. And it's been shocking to me in my life how that gets me into conflict with other people. Nope, I'm not going to do that. I remember knocking on a professor's door and they came in and I said, hey, I just, I just want to let you know, and I know we're getting to know each other because I'm new here, but I just want to let you know when you text me on a Sunday, I'm never going to respond to that. I'll get back to you on Monday, but when you have an emergency on a Sunday, I'm, I'm not tuned in to work on a Sunday. And I just want to let you know that. I, I don't want you to think I'm not paying attention to you or I don't care about you or I'm ghosting you. I'm just letting you know that when it's on a Sunday, I'm with my family on Sundays. And that's all that matters to me. It takes number one position. And uh, that didn't go so well, right? Well, how can you be graceful with people in that situation? But I think, I'm, I think in that sense, I'm being not liked for all the right reasons. If that's something that gets people angry, their hearts are in the wrong place. And it puts them in a position where they have to deal with the fact that they're angry about that. What kind of person would be angry with somebody who loves the Lord? Shouldn't, shouldn't that be an encouraging thing? So to simply say, no, that's set apart for God, that is my defense. And Peter's saying here in verse 15, always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you with meekness and with fear. What's my fear? It's not fear of that person because Peter has already said we should fear God. So when I do this with meekness with other people, I have some fear of what God's going to think of me when I go through this conversation. And I want to have a good conscience. I want to leave that conversation with the right thing. So somebody says, why is Sunday so dang important to you? Why are you so religious about tithing? Why in the world do you stay for lunch? That's a long time every Sunday. And our response is, yeah, I love God's blessings. It means something to me, and it, and it does something. And that starts the tug of war. Be ready to explain why God is sacred and why you set him apart in your life. 
This is different than knowing 40 Bible verses and getting into an apologetics argument. It's simply giving a reason or a defense for everyone who asks you for the hope that's in you. Why is this such a big deal to you? Because I feel the blessing. Because I know Jesus loves me. Because I got family members that need me on Sundays. And I'm not walking away from that. It, if, if with all that's in me, that's all that matters to me on that day. Be ready to explain why that's important, why you've set God apart. If you don't set God apart, you never enter these conversations, ever. Because it's you just move and go whichever way the world tells you to go. You never butt heads with this. So we make life changes because we hope for Jesus. We hope for blessings. We hope for his return. We hope for heaven. We hope that he'll hear our prayers. We hope that all of that comes together. The hope that's in us involves all of those elements. I love what God gives me. So I'm going to live God's way. And it's not because I'm being burdened or pressured into it. It's I choose it. I choose it. Don't blame other people either. Well, at my church, they make me wear a belt all the time. And so, no, 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 no. I choose to wear that belt. It has nothing to do with what other people in the family have told you to do. You made the choice. So you choose to do that. And I'm not arguing that we all need to wear belts. Just some of us do. To do it with meekness and and fear. When we're afraid, we answer people humbly. When we have that meekness, we're actually trying to build a relationship. We recognize there's friction with this person. And our goal isn't to force the friction. We come in with meekness. Oh, I see what you're saying. And, and, And to empathize with where they're coming from. You're thinking I'm choosing this over you. And I'm not doing that. I'm choosing God first. And I hope you can respect that with meekness, right? It's not an argument. It's not a debate because the decision's already made. So I'm not going to argue with people about these choices. These are my choices. And if if there's a basic level of respect there, your, your defense requires that there's an attack, right? You can't defend without an attacker. So when Peter uses this phrasing, we're trying to sanctify not only God in our hearts, but to approach people with meekness and fear. We're trying to build an honorable relationship with the other people. Meekness is non-accusatory. I do this because I love it. I see if I see the difference in my life. You should come join me. Right? Talk, it's like talking to your mom. I got that instruction once from a boss. Every time you interact with a customer, try to talk to them like they're your mom. Right? And just don't say mom because that gets confusing for them. Right? But you'll, they'll come in and it'll be like, hey, thanks for calling in. I don't have a ton of time right now, but can I call you back in an hour? Right? And you're just you're re- relating to people like they're your mother. And you do that approach, you assume a lower status when you take on a, a disposition of meekness. You know, mom is more important to me. I have a respect and a regard for mom no matter where I'm at in life. If mom gets mad at me, I, that wrecks me. Right. And so when we do that idea and we have a fear for God and, you know, you come to these kinds of statements like, I know you want me to do things your way, but I can't because I'm serving God more, mom. And mom, I'd love it if you came to church with me. Right. I'd love it if you you did this with me, if you came to this concert with me. I'd love it if we could do a Bible study together. I'd love to show you what's so joyful about the fact that Jesus died for my sins and I have hope for eternal life because of that. It's awesome. You say, I've said that. I've said that so many times. Yep. Keep saying it. Keep showing that love and that compassion. 
or Martin Luther. Here he's standing before the diet of worms, about to be accused and killed for his beliefs, and he says, "Here I stand. I can't do any other. So help me God, Amen, Mom. I can't do any different, Mom. And this is what I'm doing this because I'm called by the Lord to do it. Please understand me. So we fear God's disappointment. It's like I can't." turn my back on the Lord. This is something that I can see what God's doing in my life. I can see the blessing in it. I'm going to stick to it even when the, the initial glow goes away. I'm going to burl through this because I want to see what's on the other end. Sanctify your heart. Redify your head for defending it. And adjust your attitude with humility and fear for God. This is Peter's advice. This is how you deal with persecution. And then 16, he closes it. Have a good conscience. At the end of the day, it's between you and God. So even my advice on how to handle this stuff, you should put on, on this back burner. The first advice you should take is what God says to do with that situation with that person. So there's dispositions here, but honestly, like I've given some thoughts to somebody about how to live life, and, and you always got to be careful with that when you teach the word because people take your thoughts seriously. You know, and the person came back and said, yeah, I'm not going to take your advice on that. And it's like, that's cool, man. You have to do this with a good conscience. I'm just saying, if I were in your situation, here's what I would do. But that's always second. And other fellow believers in the family of the church, we understand that about each other. We don't take it personally. But we do come here for wisdom, and we'll get wisdom from four or five different people on a decision. And But we don't take it personally if you don't take our advice. We're just going to tell you what we would do in that situation and let the Lord work through the body to give you counsel and advice on those things. Verse 16, that when they defame you as evildoers... Those who revile your good conduct in Christ might be ashamed. A sh- shame on you for going after a nice Christian. Like that, they have to answer for that. What did they ever do to you? How did they hurt you? Why are you so offended by these godly people? You know, and that's, that becomes the thing. And so you do then, you know, that idea that they defame you as evildoers. So that's the next level, right? If they can't just become number one in your life or, or trump those decisions and sanctifications you've made, then come the attacks. Like, oh, you're so religious. Do you think you're better than me? And the answer is, heavens no. I, I, maybe I'm more religious because I need it more than you. You know, maybe you're better. You actually are better than me. So as the world world's coming in and and there's all these problems and all this stuff why don't you get inflamed about these political issues like i do why are you not as concerned as i am well i don't have those problems at church on sunday (laughs) we don't have that same drama so i go every sunday i get a break from it maybe that's why i got a release valve why don't you come join me you know I'll come, but I'm only going to come on my terms. I'm not going to stay late. I'm not going to do the stuff. you. I won't. I can't. I won't. I will. I will. So, yeah, I'll come and I'll meet you there, but it's on my terms. Well, you know, maybe you should just come for the sake of coming. And maybe it's not on your terms. Come with an open heart. And if that's not the case, maybe you need some more time to think about it. So these conversations require some clear eyes that we can see what's going on. And I think Peter gives us the equipment to do that. The enemy simply wants you to break your covenants. This is important to the enemy. If you make a vow to the Lord, you commit to the Lord something, any tactic that gets you to break that covenant is good for the enemy. Anyone that works that way. And some are overt, but anything that gets you to skip, cut corners, 
take a, take a break from. Any of those kinds of things are things that are going to distance you from the Lord. It's a tactic. Number two, there's this idea that these conversations point out the inconsistency of the flesh. That it really comes down to humans thinking it's all about me versus thinking it's all about God. Right? These conversations are really good for your walk. They're good for your journey. And they bring things into clear distinction. And the more you can have them, the better. And generally, we go out into the world with great joy. And at some point, people are going to say, why do you have so much joy? And you're like, here we are, Lord. I'm going to fear, tell me what to say. You told me you'd be here in this moment. And then don't let go and let yourself just say, here's why I'm so joyful. This is what I have in my heart. But I have a boss that doesn't let us talk about Jesus at work. The Lord told you to talk about him, sanctify him. So somebody asks you the question, get, get ready to go and don't worry about what people think about you. Generally, the result of these conversations can be frustration and anger because you have a firm foundation, you don't move very much, right? Well, you're not being open-minded. You're so closed-minded about all this stuff. I'm not closed-minded about it. I've been open-minded my whole life until I found truth, and now I've decided to close my mind to the truth. And But I, I've walked down those paths. I've thought those thoughts. I've, been, I've, I've openly considered other things, but then I found the truth, and I love it. And the weird thing is that that frustration comes from people that we love. We're not in conversations with them if we don't like them. These are people we love and care about. And so there is that idea of just being humble with them, treating them like they're your mom, you know, respecting, coming under them. I'm not better than you. I'm not more important than you. I've simply found the truth and I've made decisions around that. And I'm so happy. Can you just be happy for me? Better yet, can you join me? So the irony of the closed-minded argument is that they're not open-minded to Christianity. (laughs) That's the flip side of that argument. And and they don't have a better alternative, right? So the fruit in their life doesn't show the things that a Christian walk does. So their final steps before persecution and, and conversion, ironically, the more friction you have at the end of those conversations, you're either headed towards persecution with that person or they're on the edge of salvation, And the reason they're getting into it so much is that they're realizing they're going to have to break on this. That eventually you do have the right answers, and that is frustrating as heck. So I'm seeing a lot of recognition and nodding heads. You've all been in these conversations before. Peter just equips you for them. Here's how to think about it. Here's how to get into it. Verse 7, for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. This is a good thing, you guys. It's not a bad thing to have these conversations. It is how you work people towards the kingdom. Simple as that. Do the good thing and let these conversations happen. Verse 18 in our chapter. Another argument for why these are good. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us or give us access to God being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. Jesus did all of this so that we would come closer to God. Can we even do a little of it so other people in our life can come closer to God? Jesus didn't do anything wrong, yet he died on a cross. And he brought thousands, millions of people into his love and into his embrace. This set of behaviors helps us to even bring one more person into his love and his grace to show that kind of behavior. No one tops Jesus in the church. And if even Jesus died for being a good guy, for just for unjust, 
he, he treated people with the utmost respect and honor at every stage of his life in every conversation. And if Jesus then ends up with persecution, why would we think we wouldn't? Right? Jesus actually gained something spiritually for the entire church by going through this. Jesus was always ready to explain why he had hope and why he was joyful. Verse 19, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Odd verse. Wait, when did Jesus go to a prison? So some people think this is the three days that he spent in the grave. Some people think this is by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison that perhaps after he was resurrected during that 40 days, he made a couple trips to the prison. Like what's Peter referring to in verse 19? Here's a thought. Jesus, he went and he preached to the spirits in prison that it's not an actual prison, that that there are people in prison all around us. And they're spiritual prisons. They're enslaved to their own will. They're enslaved to their own sin. And there's a shame in that. And as Jesus came back from the grave, his, he went and he teached to these spirits, these people that don't have the hope that we do, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. Another interesting verse. Even the disobedient are going to know God's message and judgment at some point. So be aware of that. Everyone we know will eventually see this face to face. Essentially, Jesus revealed God's plan and suffering on the cross, and he's now waiting for us. God also revealed his plan to the ancient world. They didn't listen to him, and he brought a flood. And the flood was the judgment. So there's, Peter kind of compares this, that as we're waiting for Jesus right now, there is a long suffering going on. And his point is, when once the divine long suffering waited in the days of Noah, it took Noah time to build the ark. Peter's got this image that we're living stones, we're building the church. But I think that image is like the church isn't done yet. We're not finished building it. And we've gone 2,000 years, and there are living blocks from every generation that are being assembled into this ark. And the people in the ark are going to get saved. And how Peter uses this image is phenomenal. The time it took Noah to build the ark while it was being prepared was divine long-suffering from God. He knew the judgment, and he was ready to give it. But he waited until the ark was done before the judgment came. In that, eight souls were saved. God waited for a a, a time when he knew judgment had to be given. So that divine long-suffering is important for us. God's building a church right now, and he's waiting, even though judgment is, he knows what the judgment is, and he knows it's coming. It's been prophesied. But he's waiting on this church that every soul that should be in that ark is in that ark. Some of the people in the ark got there because they had a dad that was listening to God. Not everybody that made it in the ark was, was found it themselves. Some of them had somebody to tell them, get in the ark, right? It's time to get on board. And I think the church is going to be the same way. There's going to be people that get in the church for different reasons. And some of those reasons might be because you told them, hey, mom, get in the ark. It's time to go. So essentially, Jesus is doing the same thing right now. There is long-suffering waiting for judgment until the souls that need to be there are going to be there. He says through water, he even compares the image of salvation as water was the judgment, but the ark got him through it, and he compares it to baptism. We too deserve judgment, but because we go through the water in baptism, we don't, we don't get judged. We float above the judgment of God. 
Verse 21 to wrap up the chapter, there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of flesh. It's not like taking a bath. It's very different. But the answer of a good conscience towards God. God, I'm going to serve you. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. The anti-type word there means a pattern of or a type of. We say like a typology, right? Or I often say when in the Old Testament, this mirrors Jesus Christ. And Peter's using the same kind of preaching or the same kind of teaching. Um, there are mirrors of what happened with Noah that are part of how we get saved today too. Baptism is literally means submersion or to be overwhelmed with water. Uh, that's why we do full submersion baptism, like we're going to dunk you under. God's life is overwhelming and we could be drowned in sin or we can be drowned in God's love. That's the idea. As we do some baptisms outside this summer, hopefully if we can get some nice days. Like honestly, if there's anybody that hasn't been baptized and wants to do that or think about that, talk to me. Let's do it. Um, this is part of it. And here's the thing. Like, I think Peter's aside there, not the removal of filth, but an answer of a good conscience towards God. I can't have a good conscience towards God until I've been forgiven. So this is not, you don't get baptized to get saved. You get baptized because you've been saved. And you understand that salvation. You've accepted Christ. You're following him with your heart, mind, and soul. And you just are doing it because you want to show people that that's happened. And he's commanded it. Follow the Lord Jesus Christ with their heart, mind, and soul. And he's also said, get baptized. Repent and be baptized. That's the ministry of John the Baptist. So we have a good conscience. We're made clean uh, by the washing of Jesus' blood. And then we get baptized to represent it through the resurrection. Our life means nothing unless Jesus rose from the dead. Because of his resurrection, we know there's a life beyond death. It's been rooted in history. And the world is covering up the consequences of our sin. Actively pursuing that. And they're going to continue to cover up the consequences of sin as long as they can so that people don't understand that there's a new ark that Jesus built through the resurrection. And our job is to get into the ark before the judgment comes. And Jesus says when he does come, he'll come like a thief in the night. Nobody's going to know the day or the hour. None of us will be expecting it when it happens. I think that's kind of exciting. I don't know why, but the romantic side of me thinks that's wonderful. Right? Ooh, I could, we might not even make it through the end of this sermon, possibly. Or we might wait until the day we die a natural death and we're awakened up into the, the, the capturing of the spirits. I don't know if we're in the last generation and neither do you. But that idea that the resurrection is we're saved through the resurrection of Christ. We're also promised that we'll be resurrected with Christ in the end of days. What an exciting thought. Like, I want to be there for that. That's better than any Hollywood movie that's been made. And the special effects are going to be phenomenal. Right? He right now is at the right hand of God. That's an image of authority. It doesn't mean he's separate from God. It actually means he's the acting agent of God. The hand of the king is the one that leaves the throne room to go do things. All through the Old Testament, you get Christophanes. And in the New Testament, you get Jesus himself leaving the throne room to go do things out in the land. So Jesus sits at the right hand of God. He has full authority. I love how Peter ends on this thought here. Angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. I'd go through each of the three, but essentially angels are spiritual authorities. 
and authorities are people on earth that have authorities and powers would be people on earth that have influence and control. He's actually the God of all of it. And those people will be made. This is a good thing. We actually want Jesus as our acting high priest. So much better than a Jewish high priest who's a sinful human being. I want Jesus with all power and authority to be my high priest. And when that comes then and Jesus says, you're forgiven, I'm in good shape. So our connection to Jesus is greater than anything on earth that can put pressure on our faith. And that's a t- this is a tough conversation to have. But Jesus, and this is Peter's argument, Jesus is pulling for you from heaven above. If you get into these arguments, if you get into these conversations with people that have a little more friction to them, but they're about the spiritual topic and you have a good conscience going into it, and you leave it with a good conscience, God's using that conversation either to convert that person or to train and give you tribulation so that you act with more and more faith. There is a huge blessing in it. Notably, he hears and sees your prayers. He also gives blessings that come through that. And there's something piled up for heaven, and it's all being backed up by the most powerful entity in the universe. So Peter's argument is go forward and do it without fear. Spurgeon says this, the history of the church is to be the history of the repeated. She is to be betrayed, she is to be scourged, she is to be falsely accused and spitted on, and she may have her crucifixion and her death, but she shall rise again. There's a promise in all of it. Even if we're persecuted, we are blessed, verse 14. And here we're saved by Jesus, who has all authority and power. Relax, don't have fear about it. Be bold and be courageous in everything you do. Don't back down. Sanctify God in your hearts first and everything else gets added to that. Even for people thinking about marriage, sanctify God in your heart first and he'll bless your marriage. And it's just kind of how that's going to work. If you're both looking to Jesus, you have one mind and you're moving forward together. And as a church, if we do the same thing, there's a blessing in it. Right, family? All right, amen, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for Peter and his honesty and his um, willingness to go into tough subjects and to be brutally honest about it, Lord. We just um, read what he says. And Lord, may we put your will above our own. And we, may we put your holiness and your in our pursuit of you above anything else. May we honor everyone. May we love the brotherhood. May we fear God. Lord, help us to do that with... Um, practical application in day-to-day life. As we go out of church today and we go out into our lives on Monday, Lord, help us to look for, with joy, to look for these kinds of conversations and opportunities. Not to go seeking after conflict with people, but seeking after the opportunity to tell people about the hope that we have. Um, And to do that with all courage and all joy and all meekness and understanding. May we fear you as we do it, that we honor you in every word that we say. Jesus' name. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.